Hi friends, it's Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Woo, do we have a good one for you today. Megan Doyle of DNAid is a fertility genetic counselor, and she and I share in our own jobs that we are the people you bring in when you don't know what you don't know. So a lot of people don't know that there is access to help and support like Megan and me, but when you find us, we're going to be able to help you along your journey. Megan is able to do a deep dive with patients who are having genetic issues of all kinds ahead of IVF, during IVF, during pregnancy, and she formed her own company so that she could help the most amount of people possible. And I am blown away by what she's able to do. You're going to hear us talk about a couple in-depth, let's say, terms from the IVF world. The two most important ones you need to know, and many of you already do, is REI, is Reproductive Endocrinologist and Immunologist. That's just a fertility doctor. So if you ever hear us say REI, we're just talking about a fertility doctor. And then eupoloid. Eupoloid means viable embryo. So a eupoloid embryo is a viable embryo, and eupoloid is not viable. So if you hear us talk about eupoloids... That is just what we're aiming for when we do IVF to get to a eupoloid embryo that we could transfer into the uterus. I cannot wait for you guys to dig into this episode. It is so good. Here's Megan. Hi, Megan. Hi, Abby. You're here. I'm so excited. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Welcome. I've given everybody your little intro, but I would love for you to explain far better than I will or did what it is that you do. Yeah, for sure. So I am a certified genetic counselor, but I specialize in fertility genetics. Um, And that can mean a lot of different things because there's lots of different areas where genetics can come into play if you're trying to grow your family. But um, I kind of specialize in pre-implantation genetic testing, really helping like demystify what that is and like what all of those results mean and how complicated all of that can be. But any area where there's a genetic piece for how you're trying to build your family before you get started while you're in the trenches after baby is here. And any of those areas, I uh, try to help demystify doing the testing, understanding the results, or helping you decide if you want to do the test in the first place. Amazing. So let's even break down pre-implantation genetic testing. What Tell us for anyone who might not be going down the road of infertility treatment, what point of the process is that? So there's even like different types of pre-implantation testing, but it's a test you can do on an embryo that's created through IVF. Um, and most often we're talking about the type that's screening for aneuploidy or chromosome differences. And that's kind of available to anybody who's doing IVF. And it helps us understand the chance that the embryo um, is viable. So can it implant into the uterus? Is there a high chance it will lead to a miscarriage or a child with a genetic condition that's related to a a chromosome difference? Um, So for some people, that's really helpful information, but there are a lot of limitations. So it's kind of a balance of, is it useful for you or not? And uh, there's a lot of different subtypes of results that can add complexity to that too. So I just try to help people demystify that whole process on, is this test worth the money? And uh, then help you understand the results once you've got them. So from a patient perspective, let's say I were coming to you right now and I was like, Megan, we have four embryos. They tested eupoloid, meaning they would be considered viable from where you stand. But 
my husband and I have these genetic issues and we're still concerned it's not being caught. Is this at the point where that I would come to you? You could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that it depends on, on like what you mean by genetic issues. Okay. Um, that can mean a lot of different things. So does that mean, um, like a concern with your own chromosomes where you think these embryos might not lead to a baby? Or do you think it means they might lead to the birth of a baby, but that baby might have a genetic condition that would cause health concerns or impact their quality of life? Um, And I think that's often like the two streams of embryogenetic testing that we think about. There's the stream of, will this embryo lead to a pregnancy and a baby? And then there's a stream of, we have something in our genetics that there may not be a problem with these embryos leading to a pregnancy, but once the baby is here, they might have a severe genetic condition. And, and those are kind of the two, two streams of embryogenetic testing. Got it. Got it. And what about, would somebody come to you with, let's say, um, recurrent pregnancy loss, especially with IVF, for example, in my own particular case, we did so many transfers that failed with euploid embryos. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked about this, but what ended up working for me was untested embryos, but nobody thought that was going to work. It was kind of our Hail Mary. Yeah. Could I have come to you at some point and said, do you think something weird is going on in the testing? Do you think it's my body? What would you have been able to provide had I known you then? <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots of different pieces. And I think this is where it's hard and like where I'm trying to understand how I can explain to people how I can help. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the doctors have done everything perfectly and I may not have anything extra to add, but I think the area of genetics is really opening up where there are more things that people don't know are available. So often people have a chromosome analysis, a karyotype to make sure their own chromosomes are normal, but that might be the only genetic test that's offered. Um, and we are learning that there are more genetic factors that can contribute to recurrent pregnancy loss. Um And these are kind of expanding. So there might be smaller genetic things that the chromosome testing might not have picked up um, that we're learning about that one or both reproductive partners might have and the embryos may test euploid but may still be impacting kind of the chance of success there. And it's like brand new. We don't know how many people have these genetic changes, how rare they are, how common they are, how many genes there are, but we know that they're there. And so research is really looking into all of this. And so that's kind of where I would meet with people and say, I think that this probably is going on. I don't think that there really is anything. I kind of take a lot of your history and and kind of see if it fits with one of these genetic causes. But I think there's a big part of the like counseling piece of informing people that this is really new. And so even if we do testing, we might miss something because we don't have a great understanding of what all of it out th- is out there yet mm. because it's still really in the research phase. But there's so many little pieces of info living in my brain that sometimes I really just spend a lot of time gathering information about you. That one little piece of info might be the thing that tips me off and says, you know, like that's it. And so when I was talking to you, it was suddenly we're using untested embryos and that was what was successful. And I hear that a lot where for some reason, some people's embryos just don't like being tested and Mm. suddenly they use untested and that's what works. And will we know for sure that that was why? No, but I just hear that story a lot and wonder if there's just like more going on that we don't understand. Yeah. So crazy because in those moments, 
I think if someone had told me your embryos don't like being tested, you should try them untested. It would be hard to trust that. Absolutely. Of course, right? Like as a couple, we've been through so many rounds. We would, we're like, okay, we'll try anything. And we would have, but it's a delicate balance on your end of having to share yeah. some of this news with couples that they might not be open to. So I'm curious, of course, as a generalization, how people take it when you deliver, because they're hiring you to find all these quirks, right? And to find these things that may be leading to maybe some research that may be the thing that may be this. How do people handle that news generally? I think that they usually take what I have to say fairly well, as far as I can tell, because a lot of it is 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 mutual. It's like we're doing it together. Mm-hmm. And so it it is this big process of I'm getting to know them and what their goals are first. If someone's coming to me and they're saying like, I'm ready to move on to egg donation and here's all the things that I've been through and we're, we're going through ahead with this. I'm not going to dig through their whole history and say like, I think something's been missed mm-hmm. and, and like suggest something that they're not wanting to do. Like I'm going to meet you where you are and share things that I think you are ready and willing to work with. And so there really is this kind of mutual decision-making process of me getting to know you and seeing what you would be comfortable with. I really am not going to be giving you medical advice, but I'm kind of sharing like, this is what I am seeing. These are are your options. I'm not a physician. And so a lot of it is, this is maybe you know what I'm seeing, but ultimately you should take this back to your doctor. And a lot of the time they're saying, my doctor has said this, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the time how a lot of these things come up too. Mm-hmm. So I find that a lot of the things I say don't tend to come out of left field for people. Yeah, Maybe they were already wondering these things and just didn't say it out loud. And so then when I put it on the table, they're like, you know, I really had been wondering about that. Yeah. Or, you know, my doctor had said that. It really is just kind of a mutual process of exploring a lot of these things sometimes. It also just feels, I mean, you and I both fill this gap of you don't know what you don't know, right? That's like mm-hmm. why we both have our businesses. And sometimes you just need that validation from someone else because you can't think clearly when you're on a million meds and you don't know what to do next and you're at your breaking point and the stakes are so high. And so just being able to access, because we have these thoughts, right? Like maybe there's, I was like, maybe there's just some issue with the testing of my embryos. That's so weird. I've never heard that happening to anyone. And just being able to have a voice of reason and research that validates what you might be thinking is so, it's like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And a lot of the times someone comes to me with like something just like that, like a little gut instinct of like, what if it's this? And it's usually something where they're on the right track, but they're not quite there yet. And so it might be like, what if this embryo could self-correct? And maybe I don't think that the embryo could self-correct, but I think something slightly different. And I'm thinking, I don't know that the embryo could correct, but I think the result might not be correct. Or like just a reframe where like they're not quite thinking about it correctly, but it's a little bit of a shift. And so just kind of adjusting that like you're you were almost there and just redirecting in the right direction to have them thinking about it in the right way. Mm-hmm. And then if that's true, this is what you can expect. And just little things like that on, were you on the right path? And if yes, here's where it might go. If not, this is really what we're expecting. 
So let's break this down even more. What are you looking at when people come to you and you do these deep dives? What is it that you're physically looking at? It depends, again, if they're wondering, like, is there a genetic cause for my infertility? It's usually people who have had IVF failure is kind of what we're exploring. So, And usually it's because their physician thinks that something genetic has caused that IVF failure. So their doctor is kind of suspecting something hasn't gone to plan and it wasn't because of their protocol or like it wasn't what they expected based on their initial workup. It was really out of the ordinary and they think... The results were out of the ordinary. Like they did this protocol they thought would work and then they didn't get the results they expected in any way, right? Something crazy happened. All of the eggs were immature. And, you know, obviously cycles are really variable and you can have things like that happen. But if it was just really not what the physician was expecting, we know that there are genetic causes for people who cannot make mature eggs. And so if that has happened through multiple cycles then we can explore, would a genetic test be beneficial that could help this person understand, are they kind of genetically predisposed to making immature eggs? Are they never going to be able to do that? Or was it related to the protocol? Was it something in the lab and can help kind of understand if there was a genetic cause? Same things for things like embryos that are rest really early and don't make it kind of to the blastocyst stage. Again, happens all the time in IVF. Yeah. Things where It's really dramatically differing from what was expected in in a dramatic way. So again, I'm kind of gathering the embryology records and really relying on their physician to say, I don't think this was protocol. It really wasn't what I was expecting based on like AMH and semen analysis and things like that. Something else might be going on. I think genetic testing is indicated. So it's usually not something I'm doing by myself. I am working very closely with our REI to tell me that something looks out of the ordinary. And we kind of work as a team to say, what are we seeing in their IVF cycle or their IVF cycles? Again, like early embryonic arrest, Mm -hmm. eggs that are immature, eggs that are not fertilizing, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's less in the recurrent pregnancy loss space the recurrent implantation failure space, but it's also expanding as well. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say for people who are like, what the heck are you talking about? Because we're getting deep in the weeds here of IVF, (laughs) which is important and great. And like what is amazing about working with you for people going through it. But basically what Megan's describing are each of the phases that have to happen in order for an embryo to become an embryo that you can then transfer into a uterus. And there are many things along the way that could happen to stop that from happening. So arresting would mean they stop growing at a certain point or low fertilization rate unexpectedly is exactly what you would think it is. It's the eggs are not fertilizing when there's no ahead of time indication that there's a reason that they wouldn't fertilize like a sperm issue or a maturity. Anyway, so all of these are markers that Megan looks at when she's looking at these reports and Again, if there's no diagnosis or sometimes unexplained infertility or things we just didn't account for, we don't know that they happen until we're in the middle of the $30,000, six months of your life cycle. And that is what is so hard about this process. I just wanted to explain that a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like where some of this testing is helpful, like it's not cheap either. Right. And so I think that's why for some people... 
if they have, you know, one round of IVF that really didn't go the way the doctor expected, they'd still rather spend one to two thousand dollars on the genetic testing if it would tell them like there is no chance for your own eggs. Right. If the genetic test can give you that answer, they'd rather know that before spending thirty thousand on another round of IVF. Which is amazing that we can do that now because that is modern technology, right? But like you're saying, what if, or I would say that the pattern is probably most people, again, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know to come to somebody like you to get that one to $2,000 test. So you do another $30,000 retrieval and then you see that there's a pattern and that pattern might say, you really need to go to donor eggs. You've spent 60,000 instead of 31,000 or 32,000. And it makes a huge difference to, to get yeah. the same answer you would have gotten before you put yourself through all of that. And that's what's so hard. Yeah. And I think the challenge is, is that we don't know what we're going to find on the genetic testing. We might get that really clear answer, but because it's so early, a lot of the time we just see things where we don't get an answer or we don't understand the genes well enough to know what they mean. And so I think that that's part of why at the initial appointment, I explain the testing in a lot of detail to help you decide if you want to do it. Yeah. Because it could lead lead to that really clear explanation of another round will not and will never be successful for you. But it's usually not that clear cut. Mm. So that's why the counseling piece of genetic counseling is so important is just, is this test going to be helpful for you? Do I think it's going to give you the answers you need to help you decide if you want to do it? And then we can, again, mutual decision-making, decide together if it's helpful. And if you don't feel like it will be, that's great. You can go on your way. If you feel like it's valuable to spend that money, then we can go ahead. And it's a, an hour of digging into your history and explaining the test to you. And if you think it's going to be helpful for you or not. Mm. And are any of these tests worthwhile before pursuing baby making? Like, do you think the bare basic genetic tests we're getting, because I can just say like Ashkenazi Jew. So when we were like, we want to start trying to have kids and married to an Ashkenazi Jew, they gave us, of course, the basic panel for Ashkenazi Jews. Do you feel like there are more invasive tests that could be done ahead of time to solve for some of these things down the road? I think that we eventually will start to get better on like, maybe depending on your initial workup, like the semen analysis. Again, right now there's a really, you know, three classic genetic tests we do if you've got really low sperm count or, or no sperm on a semen analysis. I think that's going to expand. Um, kind of As a basic. We might offer. As yeah. a basic. Because I just think yeah. so much of this is low-hanging fruit. Why not do it? Yeah. It's crazy to me sometimes. I mean, especially... Sperm is a great example. Some people don't even think to test the sperm. They just write and immediately assume it's an egg issue. Yeah. And then, you know, three rounds later are like, oh, right, we could have done a fragmentation test. Like what? Right. So I'm just curious, like if you feel like some of these should be part of the more basic procedures. I think probably in a few years. Yeah. I think right now it's maybe still a little bit researchy. Mm -hmm. And we need to better understand what the results mean before we maybe offer them to that big of a group. Yeah. But I think that probably it it should be ingrained more as a standard of care earlier mm -hmm. um, to help people understand this. And I think that that's probably the way things are going to go as we just gain a better understanding of it all. But And, and really um, to that end, I mean, I don't feel like enough doctors 
depend on you. I mean, I feel the same about me too, right? Like, I think there are so many tools out there. You know, I'm curious when people come to you. I know, for example, I have a client that's working with you that found you independently and you are not working with her physician at all, her REI, and you are helping her far more than her doctor is. No surprise, as am I. But thank God she knew to look for you. And I think because of the way her doctor is in particular, that doctor would not be super open to being on a team with you, which is so unfortunate. And we have doctors like Dr. Amy we were talking about who are so open to like, we are all on the same team and we just want to get you what you want. Are those the doctors that recommend you to their patients? Or do you find that mostly patients find you independently and and need the self-help? It's about a 50-50 split of physicians I work really closely with who send me their patients who recognize that we all work better as a team. Yeah. And then patients who find me independently because they're not getting the care that we need. And I think that the genetics part of reproductive medicine is just exploding. And I don't see why more people don't recognize that it it just helps to have more experts on your side. And I can't do what I do without REIs, but my one area of expertise is fertility genetics. So I spend my whole day and my whole career in this one subspecialty. And it's all that I research and it's what I live and breathe. Like I love it so much. So I can do deep dives into all of the PGT technologies and how all the labs are different and how they're changing every year and all of these subtypes of results that I just expect the average REI does not have time to do. And again, like all these different genetic causes of infertility, I can spend my whole career doing this one specific area. And so I just, it can be a huge benefit to someone who doesn't have time to do their whole career in that. Right. And I think we just work better as a team. Um, So I think that it's going to be a really big area for fertility medicine moving forward, but there are not very many genetic counselors. I think there are less than a hundred fertility genetic counselors in the U S and so there just are not very many of us. And that's part of why I went private is just to try to help as many people as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. How did you decide you wanted to do this? Uh, And kind of do my private practice? Well, private practice, but also really dedicate your life, life specifically to fertility genetics. And I'm fascinated by the genetic counselor additional certificate or degree that you got. And that it really, it's just so highly specialized that you are able to talk, like you said, you're able to talk to patients where they are and not say, right, there's such a a specific specialty in the way that you would talk to a patient and you actually train for that. And you obviously need to be the kind of person that can absorb that and work that way, right? Like a certain kind of empathy for sure. But I didn't really even know that there was a counseling degree for genetic counseling specifically. So tell me what excited you. So I know there's like a lot of questions at once, but like (laughs) how you were like, this is going to be my niche. Like what drew you to it? And then how the counseling piece of it works. Yeah, I love that. So I was not sure what I was going to do as like a young adult and took a genetics class in undergrad and loved this, like the science piece of like why we are the way that we are. Like it explains this at a really basic level. 
And I Googled careers in genetics and then came across genetic counseling. And like, I knew I didn't want to be in a lab. I had always wanted to work with people. And so like literally Googled genetic counseling and found that. And it is a a master's program where you're trained in genetics and counseling in tandem. Um, And so you learn all about medical genetics and you're trained in counseling skills. And genetic counseling was kind of born out of this idea that we were kind of very conscious of eugenics. And so, you know, whenever you're doing a genetic test, you're not wanting to to kind of backslide into, you know, eugenics. And so genetic counseling is one of our tenets is really being non-directive, meaning we don't want to tell you what to do, because if that's what we were doing, we would say we could say people with disabilities shouldn't exist. Mm. You, You know, it's a very slippery slope there. So the idea being that we're aware a lot of the time of our own biases. We present information and options as neutrally as possible. We get to know you as patients and your goals and really empower you to make the decisions that are best for you because you're going to be the experts in your own lived experiences and in your own lives. And you are going to be the ones who know what's best for you. So in all areas of genetic counseling, that's kind of our goal. And all of us kind of function in that type of way. And for me, when I was in genetic counseling graduate school, I did a rotation in a a fetal therapy center. Mm. So helping people who were pregnant with babies that had um, birth differences Mm -hmm. and maybe needed surgery for those types of things. And it was just a big turning point in my learning experience. I really connected with those people and wanted to support them. There's just not certainly not a lot of career opportunities. It's very, very specific. But I felt a really big connection to those people who desperately wanted a child and wanted to do what was best for their children. And there's just a very big overlap with people who are experiencing infertility and pregnancy loss in terms of the support that they need, their goals. And so when I saw a job offer in the fertility space, it just really felt right and got a job in a fertility clinic and never, never left that space from, uh, from here. Yeah. And that's kind of how, yeah, how I ended up in infertility, just really appreciating kind of the science side. But it honestly was the patients that kind of drew me in that, like their motivations and dedication to what they're doing, but also that they value my expertise, which is not kind of something I experienced in some of the other mm-hmm. fields as well. Yeah. And I know for many of us in the field, we went through our own journeys through infertility and wound up deciding we were going to dedicate our life to this. For you, it sounds like you saw other people doing that and decided the same, which I completely resonates with me as well. But at this point, you don't have any children. I know that children are something you maybe want one day. Talk to me about how that feels to yearn maybe. Are you yearning for children while you're going through helping other people have them or you're just not there yet? Yeah, so I started dna you know, with the idea that it was going to fill a gap. You know, I saw all of these people that weren't being served by their fertility clinics or, you know, not having access to a genetic counselor. But like the other big piece that kind of led me to do it that I don't think I recognized at the time was really meeting my own need. And I have um, chronic migraine. So daily I live with um, symptoms of chronic migraine, vertigo, dizziness, brain fog. Like I you know, won't fixate on kind of what I, what I live with day to day, Mm. but it, it is really disabling. And 
being able to better accommodate that for myself was part of why I went into private practice, just so I could kind of better accommodate my my disability. And that really is, you know, the biggest reason why my partner and I haven't started our family yet is how challenging it is kind of physically for me day to day to care for myself and the financial burden. It's like one thing, you know, like see how successful I'm looking on social media, but there is kind of a big financial piece of, you know, struggling new business and like the medical expenses that come from, from having a disability too. And so that is kind of the reason we haven't started yet. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be 34 this year and every (laughs) year I know, but every year that goes by, you know, like working in this industry, like you certainly know every post on social media is about like, oh, you're young, freeze your eggs. And even if you don't know, like freeze your eggs and I can't afford to do that. Yeah. Um, I can't even afford the medications, you know, like there is so much that there really is that pressure and knowing that there are things that I could be doing to kind of preserve that, but I'm just not able to access. It's hard. Yeah, it, it is hard. I feel like we need to find you an egg company, an egg donate, or really an egg. You got, I mean, if you have a partner that you're assuming you're going to procreate with, you could do embryos, but we need to find a company that will let you trade them your high expertise for an egg freezing cycle. We're going to work on great. that. <laughs> okay. We're going to work on it. That <laughs> sounds great. Yeah. I just think like, Part of the challenge is, I think, because it's so dynamic in, I would love to have children if I knew I would be well enough to care for them and and raise them. And and it's just, yeah, hard to know how you'll be doing in the future when when your health kind of changes so quickly day to day. Forgive me, this is going to be one of the dumbest questions I've ever asked, and I'm fine with it, but... um... Would chronic migraine be something found on a genetic test or like some marker for that condition? No. Okay. So it's not like you could see if you would pass this on or someone could have seen if this would have been in your future. That's right. Yeah. We know that migraine is pretty highly genetic and that it runs in families pretty frequently, but it's something that we say is is like polygenic and multifactorial. So it's probably a lot of genes that work together. It's not just like you have the migraine gene or you don't. So it's really hard to predict. And then there's probably lots of other factors that play a role too, like hormones and other kind of lived experiences. Like for me, like trauma was kind of a triggering factor. Mm. So it just is hard to predict. And so, yeah, I don't know if my children would be impacted the same way or not at all. Yeah. And yeah, how all of that would work. Do your clients keep in touch with you once they... Like for me, when I get a baby announcement or like I just got to this morning, a baby shower invitation from someone that literally would like send me the cursing emoji every time she got her own, <laughs> got invited to a baby shower. And then she sent me hers. and was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I'm like crying and sending her a picture of me crying. It's so meaningful to me. Your clients <laughs> yeah. keep in touch with you too. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Good. Because yeah. that's like the reward for everything we've done, right? It's fantastic. You got that little email folder in your emails yes. with like the baby pictures. Yes. Yeah. It's wonderful. And because I focus so heavily on helping people that have mosaic PGTA results, yes. that's often who I hear from. And uh, like, positive betas and good ultrasound scans and all of those. It's we just... didn't even get into mosaicism, which could be like a whole, maybe we'll do a whole other episode <laughs> on mosaicism. 
you, you did reference before a little bit of self-correcting and I was like, we should get into that. <laughs> so let me like just a, a brief little bit on that, which is that sometimes embryos come back mosaic. So if you picture an actual mosaic made of a million tiles, some of the tiles are something, meaning in this case, abnormal, and some of the tiles are normal. And so we don't get a fair representation of if it's really an, a normal or an abnormal embryo. And we're finding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's, that many of these embryos that are mosaic turn out or self-correct within the uterus and turn out to be perfectly healthy babies. And so I know firsthand that a lot of people come to you with these sorts of embryos. And again, we could do a whole nother, and maybe we will do a whole nother episode on this, but like, it's actually a lot of hope out there because some people are getting only mosaic embryos and they think they're done. They're screwed. They can't, there's never going to be a way that they can procreate with their own genetics. And it turns out that they just have a better threshold for mosaic embryos and they get in there and they self-correct. And like without you, they would not know that. Yeah. Mosaic results were like how I got started. I almost made my Instagram handle Mosaic Meggie when I first got started. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be my bread and butter. Yeah. But we can do like four podcast episodes yeah, on maybe we will. embryos. I love that. But you're exactly right. I've had so many people complete their families using embryos with mosaic results. They either self-correct or I think what we're learning is that a lot of the time they were never mosaic to begin with mm. and they were actually euploid and that the PGT test didn't quite represent the genetics of the embryo in the first place. Mm. And there are so many nuances with PGT and mosaic results and like digging into, you know, high versus low versus what's wrong with the chromosome. Is it the whole copy or is it just a piece of it? And the lab that was used and how they do their testing that I do such a deep dive, whether you've got one or a ton of mosaics that really help you understand, like, what do we think is going on with this embryo? Could it be a false positive? Might it actually be a euploid? What's the chance that it's not? If it self-corrects, what happens? If it doesn't self-correct, what happens? Like, every question you're wondering about this mosaic, let me help answer it for you. I love that. Oh my God. (laughs) I just love that you exist. It's amazing. We will of course link out to your actual handle, which is not mosaic Meg, Um, (laughs) but um, you make it very easy for people to find you and book an appointment with you. And which I'm so happy about because, you know, we need you, we need you. We need to work together. We want to be on the same team, all the things. Yeah. Um, But thank you for opening up and, and I just think you're such a gem. So I'm so happy you could do this with me today. <laughs> Thank you. Me yeah. too. Good to Glad see you. connected. Me too. Okay. I'm seriously considering doing an in-depth set of episodes with Megan about genetics, mosaicism, all of these things that are so intricate and complicated and are not broken down for patients going through infertility and it actually makes a difference. So stay tuned for that. I love her so much. In the meantime, please remember to rate, love, follow Abby Feeder on Instagram or The Fertility Chick or In Circle Fertility. Please remember you don't have to go through this alone. I am here for you. Megan is here for you. There's a whole team of people that want to make this process better for you. We will, of course, link out to Megan's Instagram handle. She makes it very easy to find her. And I highly recommend a consult with her if this is in any wheelhouse of yours. 
that you need help on. And of course, feel free to grab a 15 minute call with me. Let's see if I can lighten the load for you. In the meantime, see you next week.